Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry. It's a brand new day. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a it's a Wednesday. Yeah. Welcome back, buddy, from uh, vacation. Yes. Uh, you mean I went to New Zealand? Yeah. And then to Okinawa. It was pretty awesome. You want to say anything about it? Or? Uh, New Zealand is wonderful. And yeah. I always love Japan. Is part of Japan? I've heard New Zealand is like uh, America in the 1950s. That hmm. it's like. I've heard it described that way as very uh, pure still and like oh yes friendly and just sort of uncorrupted. So um, apparently New Zealand ranks fourth on the Global Peace Index. Yeah, which is you know it takes into account like like we were in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> yeah, I you don't get the impression that there's this naivete or innocence necessarily. It's more just like they are a thoroughly content peaceful people. Man, that's nice. And it's not like, you know, it's not like that manufactured, like, labored kind of, like, friendly contentedness sure. that you kind of run into sometimes. This is the real deal, Man. and it rubs off on you while you're there. Like, that's New nice. Zealanders are A-OK in my book. Yeah. Everyone we met, everyone was friendly, it, in, except for one truck driver yeah. who I had an incident <laughs> with. But in retrospect, I look back, and I'm wondering if he thought he was trying to protect me. Oh, wow. By not letting me go around him. Interesting. But everybody else <laughs> was just like totally friendly, neat, cool people. And we were everywhere. Like That's we awesome. were in the little spa town of Rotorua. Uh-huh. We were in Auckland. We were in Wellington. We were in a little Napier, which is like the art deco capital of the world. Oh, cool. They had an earthquake in 1931 and it just leveled the town. Well, the fire afterward leveled the town. So they're like, we need to rebuild what kind of architectural movement is hip right now. Yeah. Art Deco. So they rebuilt the town in Art Deco. It's really pretty. I love Art Deco. That'd be You nice. would love Napier. Cool. Yeah. So uh, New Zealand, awesome. Great stuff. Lots of sheep. Like, no joke. Yeah, yeah. They're probably the more sheep than, <laughs> sheep than people. Yeah. Um, and it's a wonderful place. Awesome. And then, of course, Okinawa. We Once we got there, we're like, okay, let's start eating. Yeah, you're like a, a Japan expert at this point, right? Uh, except I can't speak Japanese, but yeah, everything else, I'm an expert. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. We, uh, hung Good out with, with Yumi's, uh, family. Nice. And her little, I guess, second cousin or first cousin once removed, little kid. Nice. Awesome, little precocious dude, uh, at one point was trying to talk to me and he, like, just put his face in his hands and said in Japanese, this communication in Japanese is not going very well. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah, it was very. Adorable. And you ate like a king. Yes, I bet. Feasted. Man, that yeah. sounds that sounds great. Thanks, man. Thanks for welcoming me back. Yeah. I'm still a little jet lag, so I noticed. In case I, <laughs> I get a little weird, uh, that's why. Uh, well, maybe one day we can uh, hit up New Zealand on a tour. I would love that. Yeah, yeah, and Australia too. I know they love us over there. Well, we can't go to one without the other. I just did. Well, first, stuff you should know, show. Oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Yeah, sure. That would be rude. Yeah, it would. Awesome. Well, welcome back. Thanks. Um, and now, Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you ever been? No. I've been to London, and that's it, as far as the UK goes. Yeah, same here. Um, I would love to go to Stonehenge. Me too. It sounds like a very, very cool place. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to go before I, I researched this, but now that I have, I'm like, definitely want to go. Because- 
It's not just Stonehenge. You think it's just Stonehenge and you go and there's like the uh, the rock formation and sure. and you get in your car and go home. You could do that, but you'd be <laughs> missing out on like a whole huge rich tapestry of weirdo earthenworks that are totally mysterious yeah. to us still to this day in that whole area. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't either. It's a hotbed of hinges. Yeah. You know? Which it, technically a hinge, by the way, we should say, is a an earthworks. That yeah, I didn't know that until I studied this. I didn't either. Yeah. But uh, so it's an earthwork that consists of a bank and a ditch. Yeah. And in most cases, the high bank encloses a ditch within it. Right. But Stonehenge, which is which gives the uh, name hinge to other hinges. Sure. Is the opposite. It's a reverse hinge. It has the ditch on the outside of the bank. Yeah, and and you know it sort of looks when you look at these images of hinges from above, um, sort of like a crop circle with nothing in the middle, right? Just grass, just grass. Yeah, and remember that's where the home of crop circle started was in that area, the that's Salisbury right. Plain, and outer space. Right. All righty, Stonehenge. So, like we said, Chuckers, the 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 whole reason for any of this stuff. For building these things, still defies understanding. Yeah, but uh, exploration has gone back many, many, many centuries. You know, you don't just walk past Stonehenge and say, "Oh, that's natural." It's clearly man-made. Yeah, but the idea behind it has been lost. But study of the whole thing has kind of has yielded some pretty good stuff. Like, for example, we have a pretty good idea of when Stonehenge was constructed, and apparently. Uh, it was constructed over a period of less than 200 years. Yeah, we also have a pretty good idea about where it is because it is where it is, which is eight miles north of Salisbury, Wiltshire, England. Right. Uh, home of crop circles. Home of crop circles and where the Banshees live, and they do live well. The Banshees? Yeah. You're not a Spinal Tap fan? No. <laughs> I've been having that song, Stonehenge, in my head all day on a loop. They talk about the Banshees? That's one of the lines, where thought, the Banshees live and they do live well. I thought they uh, were from Ireland. The Banshees? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they're talking about druids in the song as well. Yeah. It's Spinal Tap. Which is a common uh, a common misconception that the druids built Stonehenge, right? Yeah, they um, have dated it, and they were not there at the same time, correct? Yeah, so back in the 19th century, some antiquarians, which was what they used to call historians and archaeologists and stuff before there were such things, um, figured that Stonehenge was some sort of druidic temple, which made a lot of sense because the druids were a weird mystery cult that sure. um, were big on, like, uh, human sacrifice and all sorts of like really interesting stuff. Yeah. They were the priestly class of the Celts, right? Right. Um, the problem is, is the Druids were around from about 300 BCE till the first century CE it, when the Romans suppressed them. Uh, and Stonehenge is way older than that. At least the whole earthworks thing goes back at least 5,000 years. Yeah, and that's the earthworks. The actual large stones that it's most famous for, um, they date that between 2620 and 2480 BCE. Yeah. Uh, which is about the same time as the Great Pyramids in Egypt. So um, if you're wondering how they managed to get these large stones, it's still a mystery. Yeah. But um, they were not as advanced as the Middle East at the time. 
Right. So in the Middle East, they were, no, they were well into, I guess, the Bronze Age, um, while the, yeah, uh, I guess so. well, at, at that time, Europe, Western Europe, at least, was still in the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea that there was this massive public works um, is, is a huge mystery. Like why that happened, how it happened, how they got the stones there. There's another um, long-held theory that was recently discarded that uh, the stones were moved there through glacial activity. Yeah, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years before, um, and they've they've checked it out and they've said no, these stones actually did come from quarries at, at a minimum, I think, of forty miles away. Yeah, they said that, that even if um, there was glacial evidence, then it would not have been able to carry it that far. Right. There's just no way. Yeah. So humans did. Again, no idea how, because this is before the wheel was around in Western Europe, which makes the whole thing that much more impressive. Yeah, they've got some theories, like um, basically things that sort of acted as wheels before there were technical wheels, like uh, small rocks or stone ball bearings or the old log roller trick. Which makes sense, uh, because the largest of these things can weigh up to 50,000 pounds. Yeah. And the smallest ones are, f- you know, about 5,000 pounds, two to five tons. Yeah. So you the can't smallest just ones. Get like the strongest men to right. lift these things. You got a hundred strong men because they're, you know, only so big. You can't crowd that many dudes around and lift this thing anyway. Exactly. There's just no way. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. So let's talk about the stones themselves. I mean, this is what people think of when they when they talk about Stonehenge, but there's more to it, and we'll get into it. But the stones, um, the the upright stones, yeah, are called um, sarsens, right? That's right. And sarsen, it's a it's a kind of sandstone that's pe- particular or peculiar to the region. Uh, yeah, and the closest um, they found this is the Marlboro Downs, about 20 miles away. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Basically, if you haven't picked up on it by now, what we're saying is these stones weren't just laying around and they decided to prop them up. Right. At the very least, they were brought from 20 miles away right. and likely much, much further. Oh, I thought it was 40 miles away. 20 miles away? Well, they said the closest source of this sandstone is 20 miles away. Gotcha. Okay. But there were, there's all different kinds of rocks, which we'll see. Yeah. Um, so the sarsens, it's a type of stone, but when you're talking about Stonehenge, uh, if somebody points to a stone and says, that's sarsen there, yeah. they're talking about the upright column. That's right. The sarsens are topped in the uh, outer circle and in the inner circle of stones by what are called lintels. That's right. Which are also sarsen stone, I believe. But um, because they're horizontal on top of the upright ones, they're called lintels, and the upright ones are called sarsens, right? Yes. Pretty cool. And again, these are really heavy stones. And again, we have no idea how they got them there, yeah. how they erected them, and how they got the heavy ones on top of the upright ones. Yeah. That's crazy. That is pretty Because again, we're talking about many, many ton stones, right, each. But as if just to show off for the, the people that followed... Um, the the people who erected Stonehenge carved the sarsens with a knob, knobs on top, and carved the lintels with grooves so that they fitted, and they were replicating a uh, type of woodworking. Yeah, mortise and tenon. Uh-huh. Um, and all put together, these are called a trilithon. In the inner circle, the big ones. Yeah, when you have the, the sarsens and the lintels, it's called a trilithon. And, uh, yeah, they... They don't know why they carved those because apparently 
when I heard that, I was like, well, probably to make them fit together better. Yeah. But they said that it really has nothing to do with it. Well, they said it's totally unnecessary. Yeah. So they think it may be symbolic. Right. Um, which we'll get to later. Sure. Um, so, the, so you've got inside the inner circle and I, I found, um, t- this kind of thing. It's like describing uh, a yo-yo motion or something like that, like a yo-yo trick. It's just easier to go see it yourself. There's a thousand, a million and a thousand. Great pictures of Stonehenge. Yes, one million, <laughs> one thousand pictures. So just go look at one of them. So yeah, it'll help if you if you're checking this out while we're describing it. But there's the inner circle of Stonehenge, and those are made of uh, trilithons, which are two upright sarsens and a lintel, right? Yeah, there's five of those. And then and those are the big boys. Those things are like thirty feet tall. I, I think, think is the, the tallest one. Yeah, which is I didn't realize it was that big. That's like ten meters. Yeah, you have to. I would say you probably have to go there and say, oh, this is bigger than I thought. Right. Unless you thought it was bigger, then you might say it was smaller than you thought. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, unless the opposite is true. <laughs> um, and then in the outer uh, circle, uh, it was apparently, or it was intended, or it was at one point, to be a complete circle. And this is made of lintels and sarsens, but they're not trilithons because it's just basically if you took a bunch of um, sarsens, a bunch of upright columns and put yeah. them in a circle and then topped it with as few lintels as would make a complete circle, that's what you have. So it made a ring. Yeah, and I, I think my impression is that it was not ever completed because there would probably be some evidence of the, the you know, fallen down sarsens or something. Right. Um, well, there's a... Th- unless they were taken away. That is the theory, that when the Romans came along or then later on when the church came to power after the fall of the Roman Empire, that um, locals were like, well, that's some pagan weirdness. Sure. We don't want to encourage paganism. Let's just take it and build a church. That'll right. show them. So it's possible that some of those rocks are found in medieval churches in the area. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's cray. Uh, and there are four more of the sarsen stones um, that actually have names. The slaughter stone, mm-hmm. the heel stone, which is huge, uh, and then two station stones. And they're uh, out of the outer sarsen circle. Right. Inside the circle and then also outside the circle are what are called blue stones. These are the smaller stones that are between two and five tons still. Yeah, little guys. But that's that's what they're called. And there's a bunch of those guys, too. Yeah, and they're uh, called blue stones because when they're cut... Uh, or when they're wet, they look blue. Yes, pretty neat. So that's the stones, and um, but that's just the blue stones. It's there's, they're all different kinds of rock, which proves that they came from different sources, right? Which, which is a key. It is a key. It also might um, it might get to the bottom of why Stonehenge was built. But we always we just touched the tip of the iceberg here by just talking about the rocks. We're going to talk about the larger hinge part and what was originally there right after this. All right, Chuckers, we're back. Yeah, um, I mentioned quickly before we broke about the blue stones being uh, coming from different places. Um, one of the places they think that 11 of these bad boys came from was in western Wales, 140 miles away. Nuts. So that that's probably the maximum some of these stones traveled. Which, uh, it, it kind of... Um Gives a little bit of credence, weirdly, to one of the old legends of where Stonehenge came from, which was Merlin. 
Merlin and some of his boys <laughs> stole it from Ireland, and the stones proved too heavy for the, uh, uh, the I guess Merlin's men to lift, even fifteen thousand of them. So uh, he just uses magic to load them onto the boats, which he should have done to begin with. Yeah, they were like, "Why didn't you try this before?" Like Jimmy broke his back, right? Jimmy the uh, the knight. <laughs> yeah, um, Sir Jimmy. <laughs> that was from the Historia Regum Britanniae. That uh, sounds like magic. Yeah, the history of the kings of Britain from Geoffrey of Monmouth. I love that guy's name. And that was the one of the original um, Geoffrey of Monmouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a G. Geoffrey. Geoffrey. Um, that was one of the original theories. Uh, was that giants built this, and that uh, to commemorate the death in the battle of, uh, against the Saxons mm-hmm. was when Merlin was like, "Let's steal this stuff. The right. giants dance. Let's the, steal it." The giants built it in Ireland, and Merlin was like, "Let's go steal that." Yeah, because four hundred Britons died. Britons. All right, so. That was one of the theories. We'll get to a few more of those in a bit. Okay, all right. But uh, jumping back to the Salisbury Plain, uh, what they do think is true is that they- Not giants? <laughs> not giants. Not Merlin? Was that this was a, a, a good place for hunting. It was a good hunting ground. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there's a, a causeway from glacial heaving and thawing. It formed what they call like an avenue. Yeah. Um, which like made of chalk, apparently. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So this avenue coincides with the rising of the summer solstice and then the setting eventually with the winter solstice. Yeah. Um, and f- for many years they thought this was like this meant something, but now we think that it's just coincidence. Right. But I mean, like if you're, if you're, you know, hunting woolly mammoths and sure. eating psychedelic mushrooms and that's your existence, you see the sun come up and then go down in this crazy, like, the, on the longest and the shortest day of the year, and yeah. there's like a white chalk line connecting the two. Sure. You're going to put a little significance on this. Yeah, of course. Um, so they did. That's why they think that they chose the site for um, for Stonehenge. Like it was sacred and divinely inspired. Exactly. Yeah. Again, you were on a ton of mushrooms at the time, so it made <laughs> sense then. Okay? That's right. Don't judge. Uh, so we mentioned the hinge earlier. That was um, These hinges... I don't think we pointed out they're not natural formations. No. They are designed and built by people. And so something like 3,000 years uh, B.C., so about 5,000 years ago, yeah. on the nose almost, some Neolithic uh, Western Europeans in the area of what is now the Salisbury Plain mm-hmm. um, grabbed some deer antlers, turned them into pickaxes, yeah. and started digging the circles that ended up becoming the ditches that ended up becoming uh, Stonehenge. They yeah, built the earthworks. They dug the ditch. They made the bank, and then you had this raised ground long before the stones ever showed up. Yeah, about three hundred and thirty feet across. And like you said earlier at the beginning, it is um, a reverse hinge because the high bank is on the inside. Yeah, and not the outside. Right. Usually, the ditch is inside the bank. That's right. Rather than outside. I don't know why Stonehenge is different. Who knows? Maybe they started to make it and we're like, oh, man, we made it backwards. <laughs> yeah, but we've already done like 100 feet. Yeah. So. I'm not digging another <laughs> one. Uh, so they left a uh, wider entrance on one side on the northeast end um, which is kind to of that like, avenue. That's like where the avenue runs sure. into Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah. The main entrance. It's almost like a road to a roundabout. Uh-huh. Or a cul-de-sac. Yeah. That's what, maybe that's what it was. It was a <laughs> Sun Temple cul-de-sac. 
Um, and then there's a narrow entrance on the south side. And, um, that's not all, that's not all that's there. They, they found all these holes, the Aubrey holes. Yeah. 56 of them, um, basically where they think that there were wooden posts, that there were either totems or some kind of a structure there previously. Yeah. So that's, that's very significant. Something like, uh, 10,000 years ago, I think about, uh, 8,000 BCE. Yeah. Somebody put up three pine posts. They think it was probably pine. Yeah, and those are not the Aubrey holes. Those are those are different. Right. They yeah. discovered those. They were going to make a uh, parking lot for Stonehenge in the '60s, and while 1960s, they were yeah. while they were excavate, yeah, I guess I should qualify that. Well, why there would be a parking lot in the 1860s? You don't know. Who knows? <laughs> uh, well, actually, I guess we do know now. There wouldn't be one. Yeah. So in the 1960s, they were going to put a parking lot, and um, they discovered these three post holes, and they were like. These probably held totems of some sort. Yeah. This is huge because there's no other site like it. There's no evidence of any other kind of uh, monument building this far back, 10,000 years ago in Europe. Yeah. It was a very – that's crazy. So at least as far back as that, this site was considered somehow significant, if not sacred, by the locals. 10,000 years ago. Yes. All right. But then again, we're fast forwarding to 5,000 years ago, 3,000 BCE, and that's when the earthworks have, have, have been constructed, the henge is built. Now we're under the Aubrey holes, because I think they were deposited at the same time, right? Yeah, 56 of them. And, um, like I said, they could have had, um, they could have held bluestones. Maybe that was a structure. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was some sort of a astrological or astronomical Astronomical, astronomical <laughs> uh, design or layout or something. Yeah. Uh, they didn't leave a book behind saying what they were doing, so right. we don't know. It's all just speculation. All we know is there is a circle of holes that probably held something at some point. We don't know what. <laughs> but that was the original henge, the original stone henge. Yeah. Uh, and then um, that was the first stage, right? Uh, yeah. Basically, at 2620, or between 2620 and 2480 is when... These Sarsen, this Sarsen horseshoe came about. Yeah, about 300 or so years. Like what we know as Stonehenge. After the first construction of the earthworks, the stones come in. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they bring the stones in, again, like you said, from as far away as Wales. The nearest is 20 miles away. There was definitely a quarry. Some stones came from like 40 miles away. Yeah. Um, so they're coming from all these different places, and they're being brought in and erected. Um, and then the, that's the second phase. So the Stonehenge, as we know and love it today, was built about 2620 BCE. Yeah. Then about um, 2300 BCE, the last phase of construction, as far as anybody can tell, is undertaken. And it's basically like sprucing up the place. That's right. Uh, that's when they dug their ditches and banks. Um that's when the avenue uh, was cleared out, and mm-hmm. which is 1.7 miles long, by the way. Yeah, that's significant. Using yeah. deer antler axe picks, yeah, they dug, they they <clears throat> made ditches on either side of this avenue to, to um, clarify it, I guess, for yeah. two miles, basically. It's pretty amazing, and they um, it followed a route um, to the a- a River Avon, um, and then over the next few hundred years, basically, they would reposition some of these stones, these blue stones. Um, to, I don't know why, to fit their whims, maybe, or I'm sure they had reasons. 
that's another mystery too. Some of this stuff would be moved around from one place to another. Yeah. Uh, you said that it goes to the River Avon. Sure. And I think about 2000, there was a, a big archaeological survey undertaken that uncovered another henge called Bluestone Henge. Yeah. That was at where the avenue hits the River Avon, so at the far end of Stonehenge. Um, that they think that's where the the bluestones came from. So apparently, originally, they may have had uh, another type of henge closer to the river and decided, let's move it into Stonehenge proper. Yeah. No idea why. You know, I used to go camping at a place called Sunfish Pond okay. at the Delaware Water Gap uh, when I lived in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And there was, at Sunfish Pond, there was this, there's this one big uh, rock bank, basically, with just tons of these huge, awesome rocks. Uh, and people would build just things out of them. Yeah. Those little like, uh, little totems or, uh, little, little, uh, structures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think everyone that went there, it was part of the, the ritual of camping there was to like spend a day moving these rocks around and doing stuff. That's cool. And I think like this could very well be what happened here. People would show up hundreds of years later and be like, I kind of like the look of that, but maybe this would look better over there. Yeah. Like maybe it was, there wasn't some grand reason other than uh, artistic. I get that. You know? My question is this. If you're talking about the smallest stone weighing two tons, that's not like... Well, that's true. You know, some hippie just going, <laughs> like, I've got I'm going to move this stone. <laughs> like, you got to get a bunch of hippies together to move one yeah. of those, you know? Yeah. So th- th- it's a community effort. Every every stage of Stonehenge is a communal effort. Yeah, which is it's it's that's important, you know. It probably had more significance than just uh, artistic. But what is that urge that drove people out in the woods? You know, to at where is it? Sunfish Gap, Sunfish Pond, yeah. Sunfish Pond, um, that that drove them to move the rocks around. Like, what made you do it? Seeing other people doing it and huh. thinking, I want to build my own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like rock stacking's a thing too, right? Yeah, I mean that's basically what we were doing. Okay, stacking rocks. Huh? Yeah. So it's an ancient primeval urge. I guess so. Um, so we'll talk a little more about some of the surrounding landscape in um, in Stonehenge right after this. So, Chuck, Stonehenge isn't the only place, the only Neolithic weirdness in the area. No, man, that place, was, there's a lot of Wicker Man stuff going on. Yeah, there was. <laughs> you know? Uh, there was something like a thousand barrows, which are um, like tombs, mound tombs. Yeah. Um, there's uh, some other henges that don't have stones necessarily. There's one called Woodhenge. But probably the most important other site around there is called uh, Durrington Walls. Yes, it is also a henge. And it's on the other side of the River Avon. And one of the very significant things about Durrington Walls is that it is it has an avenue as well that's aligned with the sun on certain days. And they just happen to be the opposite days of the Stonehenge Avenue. Or the same day, but the opposite position. That's right. Uh, it had a couple of timber circles. Um, it's about the same size as Stonehenge, roughly. And they think that this could have been like a staging area for what Stonehenge would become. Which doesn't make sense for, to me. Like they're saying like this is possibly the builder's camp for yeah. Stonehenge. Two miles away, that's not a convenient camp. No. No. That's a good point. Plus also, 
So you've got Stonehenge, right? Right. And then you have the River Avon. And then a little further up the River Avon, you have, but across the other side, you have Durrington Walls. Yeah. And on the summer solstice, Stonehenge hosts the sun, the summer sunrise, right? Yeah. But on that same day, Durrington Walls, that avenue, features the summer sunset. So they're oh, aligned. Yeah. yeah. Clearly, they have something to do with one another, at least in the Neolithic mind. That's right. So it's not just this. It's not just Stonehenge. This whole site is lousy with it. But why? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's we should look at some of the older theories first that have uh, sort of been debunked. We already talked about the um, the giant's dance and Merlin the wizard, which we don't believe anymore because <laughs> we're modern thinking guys. Sure. Uh, King James the first in the 17th century did an uh, ex- uh, excavation of the site, and they found a bunch of animal bones and burnt coals. Um, Which so, I, I was just learning about him. He was a uh, a scholar king. Oh, really? Yeah, he was pretty interesting. Well, he had like the King James Bible. Sure. He had that translated. Yeah. Um, but he also was like an early essayist. Oh, yeah. Which was a new thing at the time. He was just a, a, a smart dude. Nice. As far as kings went. He wasn't just like the fat, drunk, turkey right. leg eating <laughs> kind. You know what I'm saying? Like he actually was yeah. a thinking person. Well, if he commissioned an excavation, that means he probably had a little bit of interest in yeah. things like this. And this is before archaeology even. Yeah, he could have just had people beheaded and, you know, ate his turkey. Sure. So good for him. We're down with King James? Is that what you're saying? Yes. All right. Um, so I don't think we mentioned either yet that there have been a lot of um, body, well, not body parts, but bones found. Yeah, and cremains. Yeah, human cremains. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to remains. call them that, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? Cremated remains, I think. Why was that defensive? Yeah, I remember funeral directors don't like to call them cremains. They, they said that that's just too shorthand. Right, it sounds like a McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got cremains on my burger at my McJob. Um, but there have been a lot of, uh, they think one possibility was that it was a, a burial ground um, for maybe uh, royalty, they've it's yeah. mostly been men, so maybe important people. Yeah, which is another reason why. What was it called, mortise and tenon? Um, that woodworking. Yeah, and we didn't mention that with the outer circle where everything fits together. Um, they used a a woodworking technique called dovetailing, so that the uh, lintels fit together to form like a a well, a, 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 tongue and groove. Yes. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, uh, oh, there's all this kind of woodworking simulation that's totally unnecessary. So they're thinking maybe that they were replicating a, a monument to a human dwelling, which could suggest a, basically a, a mausoleum of sorts. Yeah. And that, that ties in with the theory that if Durrington Walls was, um, a place of the living, Stonehenge was a place of the dead, and that's how they are connected. Yeah, and Durrington Walls, they call it a place of living because there's evidence of settlement, like human habitation. Yeah. Lots of um, animal bones, like from food, food waste. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's clear that people lived in, in Durrington Not Walls. Not as many dead bodies. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's another theory that uh, it's possible Stonehenge was a place of healing. There's something called the Amesbury Archer who was discovered, and he was contemporaneous to Stonehenge. Uh, he had a knee injury, and they thought, well, maybe he was on his way to Stonehenge or something. Right. Uh, th- they did a survey of 
the injuries and illness, evidence of illness of the remains at Stonehenge and found that it was about the same as other contemporary sites. Um, so they don't think that it was a place of healing, not like a spa. Right. Well, it was probably a, a, a place of the dead. Probably so. And a lot of this new th- uh, way of thinking has come about since uh, the 2000s started with um, a guy named Mike Parker Pearson. Yeah. Um, s- led the Stonehenge Riverside Project. And they've kind of brought, like, debunked a lot of these older theories that it was maybe a uh, a monument for uh, astronomy or, you know, some of the other things we talked about. Yeah. Apparently, like, if you're a Stonehenge expert, you say, yes, Stonehenge was clearly constructed in, in in some way related to the summer solstice and the winter solstice, the sun. Yeah. But they they kind of draw the line at they used it to predict solar eclipses and stuff like that. Yeah. They're saying there's no evidence of that. No. Although it could be true, but they just don't know. We just haven't figured it out yet. Uh, another theory that I like um, that's uh, one of the more modern theories is that it was a monument to unification, which is kind of neat, which makes sense um, that the Britons at the time were – from all sorts of uh, tribes and that they blended together there and they that's why they might have brought stones from all over the place right. as a symbol of our unification. Yeah. Like here's some stones from Wales, here's some from here, here's some from there. Yeah. And here's a big monument to us all coming together to one day rule the world. And well, significantly, the Stonehenge site is at the area where three different chiefdoms, territories came together. Um, so it is possible that is a, if not a monument to, a monument from cooperation from these groups. And remember, we talked about the Upper Paleolithic warlessness. Yeah. Um, it, it's supposedly these these chiefdoms were they peacefully coexisted, which also could explain um, the why Stonehenge came about. You know, one of the things you do to keep your populations occupied and busy yeah. is creating massive public um, structures. Yeah. Projects. Py- or like pyramids or something sure. like that, you know? And uh, Stonehenge could have been the result of that, of clever chiefs saying, I need to do something to keep everybody busy. Let's make Stonehenge. Yeah. My money, I mean, there's there's so many people buried there in and around Stonehenge. They say like maybe thousands of people have been buried there. So... I think it was probably just some sort of uh, final resting place that yeah. lo- looked nice, and uh, they dressed it up. Yeah, and it's probable that the people there were part of the elite ruling class. There's like they found incense burner, yeah, polished mace head, some other evidence that the people there had some sort of political, religious power. Sure, that kind of stuff. And like we said, they're mostly men, yeah. which uh, at the time, of course, they, they would have been the people in power. Yeah, you know. Yeah, at the time. That's right. Not like these days, when women can do anything they want. <laughs> we need to do an episode on the Equal Rights Amendment, man. It is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. What inspired that? Patricia Arquette? The the facetiousness about um, men being in power. Oh, sure. Yeah. Or not being in power. Yeah, let's do that one. Okay. <laughs> Patricia Arquette inspired me. I'm like Meryl Streep here. <laughs> yeah, man. That was awesome. Yeah. She was digging it. Yeah. Um... You got anything else? Uh, I'm sure we could go on about this for a while, but why? <laughs> you know, um, oh, there was one uh, theory that they erected Stonehenge to create this 
Piper's Illusion. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. Like uh, two pipers in a field are playing in certain places. They will cancel each other out. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah. It's a weird acoustic phenomenon. And apparently in Stonehenge, the phenomenon is replicated. And there is also uh, an old legend that Stonehenge was the result of pipers leading maidens into a field and then turning them to stone. Ah. Well, there's this... um, acoustic archaeologist uh-huh. who believes that like a lot more archaeological sites than we realize were dedicated to sound. Interesting. Um, and he has this theory about Stonehenge. May or may not be right. I get the impression that he was also postulating it to get attention to his, his theories. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's definitely some weird acoustic features at Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't discount that. Yeah. Was it a byproduct or was it intentional? Right. Yeah. Who knows? We don't even know why they built it in the first place. Well, we're going to have to visit it if we ever go to England for a live show. For sure. Maybe Just, we'll do uh, a live show at Stonehenge. Pink awesome. Floyd. <laughs> yeah. They did something at the- They uh, did it at Pompeii. The, yeah. Yeah. Which I've been there. Yeah. And it's amazing. Not just because it's Pompeii, but because Pink Floyd played there. Sure. You know? We'll do our live thing at Stonehenge. I think if I'm not mistaken, Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii was a concert in front of nobody. Yeah, well, on the on the Echoes video, yeah, it, they're not playing in front of anybody. Yeah, I think yet. that was the deal. That's so cool. Wow, I've got one more thing. There was a horrible uh, police brutality incident at Stonehenge. Oh, really? Yeah, there was this hippie movement called the New Age Travelers uh-huh. from the '60s, '70s into the '80s, and then in 1985, they were going to have. They were going to celebrate the summer solstice at Stonehenge. They had the year before, but a hundred thousand people showed up and like just trashed the place. Yeah. Like dug into the ground to build bread ovens and like toilets and like just, <laughs> just totally laid waste to the place. Yeah. Um, and so the, the locals were like, you can't go to Stonehenge again. So the cops tried to barricade it. The hippies tried to break through. The cops clubbed the hippies, including pregnant women and women holding children. Wow. There were eyewitnesses. It was a horrible scene. Um, and it was later called the Battle of the Beanfield. Uh, and after that, for like the next 15 years, there was no, you weren't allowed to go celebrate the summer solstice, which is a big thing for neo-Druids and stuff. Sure. At Stonehenge. And then finally in 2000, the English Heritage group, I can't remember what the full name is, English Heritage, Um, they're in charge of Stonehenge, they opened it back up. So now I think the most recent uh, summer solstice solstice had like 30,000 or so people peacefully celebrating it. I think if you dig there, though, you're in big trouble still, which is appropriate. I imagine it's pretty, uh, it's a secure location. Yes. You can't just back into it like Clark Griswold. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay. Now I really don't have anything else. Okay. Okay. Uh, if you want to learn more about Stonehenge, you can type that word into the search bar at howstuffworks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this, uh, ice cream email. And speaking of ice cream, we should thank, uh, a local ice creamery here. High Road Creamery. Yeah. High Road here in, uh, in Atlanta. Well, just outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They got in touch with us. Two people did. And one person said, Hey, I don't know if you've heard of us, but uh, you should um, try our ice cream. Yep. And another person emailed from High Road. It was like, yeah, you should. They said, we'll send you ice cream. I was like, I like you better. Yeah. <laughs> so they sent us some ice cream, and it's uh, delicious, and we just want to say thanks. And nutritious. I don't know about that. Because <laughs> that rhymes, <laughs> and you know it rhymes. But uh, this is about ice cream from Nathan. Uh, <clears throat> hey, guys, and Jerry, just listened to your How Ice Cream Works episode and thought your tuna gelato story Reminded me of my own terrible gelato story. 
You want to refresh people about tuna gelato? Yeah, if you go to Plaza Fiesta, <clears throat> the Latin American mall in Atlanta on Buford Highway, yeah. <laughs> there's a gelato place there that at least a year or two ago sold raw tuna-flavored gelato. It's dead on the taste. Uh, so we lived in Naples, Italy for two years, guys, and fell in love with real Italian gelato. Uh, and it's safe to say my wife and daughter would get it at least three times a week all year round. Uh, we took our summer holiday one year to a city called Tropea in the Calabria region. The city is famous for red onions, so much so that red onions in Italy are all called uh, Cipolla di Tropea. Yes. As we were uh, walking through the city, we saw a, a place that had onion gelato, though. Decided to try it. <laughs> I don't know. I know. Uh, luckily, my wife was smart and suggested I try it before I ordered a whole cone of the stuff. Let me tell you, it was awful. It tasted like a spoonful of onion powder and it had the consistency of snot. <laughs> oh, God. And was cold. Uh, if <laughs> It was all I could do to choke it down without throwing up. Even after eating tasty strawberry and lemon gelato, the taste still lingered. To make it worse, every time I burped the rest of the night, I got to relive the taste. Man. Uh, so that's my story, guys. I'll still, uh, I will steer clear of the tuna gelato if you stay away from the onion gelato. I will stay away from the onion gelato, but I think you should try the tuna gelato. That's the deal, Nathan. Yep. Ciao, he says. Ciao, Bella, and all that. I, I would taste any of those a small spoonful. Uh, yeah, I like use the very tip yeah, of my just... tongue to like lick the <laughs> onion one. The tuna was, I mean, it was weird. It wasn't bad. It was just, it was Strange. really surprising that like you could get Do that. that taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just ground up tuna that froze <laughs> with some yogurt. They're like it's not hard, dummy. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason whatsoever, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, you can hang out with us at our luxurious, nutritious, delicious home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 